0: Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is the introduction for episode 131. Today, Jason Lingren is with me, and we have a guest that will use a pseudonym for reasons that will become obvious. We also have submissions from other followers and people uh, that we know that have submitted things about higher education, which is what we're going to be covering now. In my lifetime, higher education has changed so drastically as to not be recognizable to what it was in the 60s and 70s in this country. And for my part, it's it's all about the same reasons of so many things we cover, but there's a little twist on it. In the information age, there is so much information available that probably a person with the willpower to do so could educate themselves up to... Almost any level they wanted, whether or not many people could pull that off, I'm not sure. Point is, is like if I take myself as an example, as a, as a young person, I wanted to learn guitar. I did read a little bit of music, but the music I was interested in was not well covered by sheet music and tablature had not yet been invented. Now I think back that if I would have had YouTube alone uh, back in those days, I could have played or learned how to play any song I wanted as an example but as we jump into higher education, it'll become pretty clear what's driving the university boat these days, and it has very little do with education, it seems. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason and our guest for episode 131, Counting the Ways to Higher Education. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 131. I have Jason Lingren with me today. Uh, we're going to be talking about higher education. Um Among other things, we're going to be talking about many things that probably the average student never considers when they start to take their path uh, upward through the education system. Also, joining us today uh, will be Tom, which is, in fact, a pseudonym. You may remember Tom from our PR Newswire episode. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. And welcome, Tom.
1: Hello there. Thanks for having me back, gentlemen.
0: Hey, good to have you. Um, I hope you're feeling better. I know we scheduled to do this a week ago, but let's just go ahead and get right in here. We got limited time. Jason, I'm going to let you lead the way.
2: So, Tom, thanks for coming back on. As per our personal conversations we've had, there's a lot of info to dispense to our listeners, isn't there?
1: Uh, Yeah, to say the least.
2: So, you're going to approach all of this starting off from the point of view of the student. So, I'm just going to hand it to you and go ahead and Let's start chipping away at this giant block.
1: Sure. Um and I'm I'm going to just preface what we're going to dive into here by just kind of letting everybody know like I'm I'm not bad mouthing the university system, you know, it was my path in life for a very long time and I I truly love the sort of search for knowledge and 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 experience and wisdom that goes with you know, growing up and getting older and and paying attention. And, and all that we're discussing here it's I'm not setting myself apart from anybody else. I'm not talking from a point of superiority or anything. It's more of I just observed. I've always been a very observant person, and I've made sure to observe what was going on around me. and that's why we're here. I, you know I just wanted to get that out of the way, so nobody is like, Who does this guy think he is? Um, but uh, so I kind of wanted to start our conversation on this from the student point of view because they're sort of the the focal point in the public mind. On this topic, um, and the reason that I think it, it sort of hit home is that this is this is the most egregious form of peer pressure, in my mind, uh, what is done to today's high school students, so particularly in the U.S. of taking this this monumental task of dedicating four or five years of your young life to something, going into arguably a lifetime's worth of debt in the process um, for the hope, fingers crossed, that you're going to get a job out of it or have some sort of meaning in life out of it. Um, So to me, that that makes this a good starting point. Um, I think the first thing to take note of here is that, besides the fact that this is the ultimate peer pressure. Because it's coming from all sides, parents, you know, uh, pastors, priests, you know, rabbis, whoever's in your spiritual circle, uh, your teachers, your student your uh, student advisors, your guidance counselors, all of those people, everybody around you, even your friends, pressuring you into this one directional thinking. Um, so you've already got that pressure built onto you before you even step foot on a campus. And you're thrown into, for most kids, it's the first time away from home for any, any appreciable amount of time. And it kind of tends to create this sort of state of mental chaos. And as those of us, yourselves included, as we're aware, when when you create that state of chaos, whether it's in a person or in a society, it leaves them vulnerable. It leaves them open to suggestion. And whatever is being pushed, whatever agenda is going on at that university, these kids are walking targets. Um, Would you say that's a fair way to look at it? I
2: think so, and I have some bullet points that I took from another listener that contacted me and gave me some information, and I'm going to keep this person's identity completely anonymous, but this individual also works for a major university and gave me some inside information that certainly lines up with what you're saying. So one of the big things that this person did say is that each student is absolutely viewed with a huge dollar sign on their forehead.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Well, let let me cut in here before we go forward, just so we can kind of set the stage. Within my lifetime, the ability of an average person to go to a university uh, has severely diminished. And while many people still can go, as Tom pointed out, if you do that, the amount of debt that you're going to accrue could be a bit like a life mortgage, if you wanted to look at it in that way. And as an example When I was in my 20s, uh, you could easily go to San Diego State University. Um, I had people who were involved in going to the school and and in other ways, too. And it wasn't about debt in any way. I mean, I think some of the biggest costs at the time, people felt like it was books. Um, But not only that, you could also go to junior colleges at the time to take care of many credits, which then transferred over. There were all these ways in California at the time to get an education. Fast forward to now. Um, the average person that just wants to go get a a four-year degree there is going to walk away with a huge chunk of debt. But anyhow, Jason, I wanted to get that in there. I'm not even sure exactly when uh, this shifted as drastically as it has become, but I'll let you continue, Jason, with where you were going.
2: Well, to pick up on that, okay, so I was in college. I attended a university in 1991, and by then the cost was already exorbitant. It's just not true anymore that even going back that far, and especially today, you can't just put yourself through college with a decent job, some kind of part-time job working on the side while you go to school. That was true decades ago, and I'm pretty sure probably in the 1980s is when that stopped because I already saw friends who are older than me taking out these massive loans just to be able to attend university, so... I would say the 1980s is probably when everything started changing from being able to put yourself through school, get your degree and not have massive debt because by the 90s huge thousands and thousands of dollars.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, but by, by the time you hit the 80s, you started into the age of the guaranteed student loan, the federally backed, you know, guaranteed student loan and you know, like any other form of government spending, if there's a guarantee attached to that money, prices go up. The price for whatever that money is earmarked for, and in this case, it's higher education. Um, All of a sudden, tuition rates start to hike up by leaps and bounds. There were some years that it would go up as much as 15%, 17% during the years, uh, undergrad and graduate school years that I, when I was in school. It's insane. It's, it's creating the bubble. We have, what, over a trillion dollars in student loan debt right now, uh, outstanding. Uh, a lot of that unpaid and probably never will be paid. Um, we know they made it out of thin air, as we all know that works, but you know, none of that would have occurred if they had simply decided to not guarantee federal student loans.
0: Well, th- think, think about this. So, so in my lifetime, um, by the time the end of the 80s was over, I'd done my colleges and, and the things I was going to do for the most part, I get out of the Marine Corps, and i'm thinking maybe i want to be a chef at that time in the early 90s the price had not jumped so severely that what i did is what many people did back in the day oh i i'm interested in this so i'm going to go to school for this may or may not ever use it in my case i never really did use chef training that i paid for it cost me all of about 5 or 6 grand at the time to become basically a trained chef and i never used it if you fast forward to now where someone is going to make that decision they're not just going to decide they want to get trained as a chef unless they're damn serious because the amount of debt accrued on the tail end of that is going to be severe i mean am i wrong here
1: no you're right absolutely right uh, i will add one little stat onto that uh that i think is very telling years ago i, I happened to be in a guidance counselor office uh you know, as an adult, not as a student, um, for other purposes, and there was a giant poster on the wall outside of this person's office, and it was from the U.S. Department of Labor, um, and it was projecting over the course of like a twenty-year period, you know, the increase and decrease of jobs in all these different industry sectors. And underneath it, in big bold uh, writing, were the stats on jobs that required degrees, in other words, four-year degree or higher. So bachelor's, master's, doctorate, medical degree, whatever, JD. And this basically boiled down to only 25% of the jobs they were projecting would be available over that 20-year period. Um, And we're kind of at the end of that 20-year period. We're just past, I think, the end of what that poster had said back then. Um, 25% of the jobs that were listed, there required a four-year degree or higher. So that's 75% of the job market you can get by with no degree or a high school diploma or, a, you know, a tech certification, whatever, an associates, you know, all of the other jobs. So the vast majority of the jobs available in our country don't require a four year degree. But what do you think, I mean, just, if you had to take a guess, cause I mean, that's all we can do, but how many students are pushed into college? It's definitely more than 25% of America's high school students. Um, it's got to be in the upper 80s, I would imagine, something like that. We're shoving kids into a program, strapping them with this debt, and they're competing over 25% of the workforce that's available. I mean, that just, that math alone should be screaming at people to maybe do an extra bit of thinking when it comes to committing to a college course or a, a major or, you know, what have you.
0: I think there's multiple issues that come up when we start talking about this. The first is, is that, so fine, someone decides they're going to get a four-year degree in the modern age, they get into this huge debt as they get their degree, and then they get out. And as you point out, um, so many of the jobs available now are not commensurate with the education like they used to be. Used to be, if you got a four-year degree, uh, in in my younger life, you're almost certainly guaranteed a job that paid more than if you didn't have that four-year degree. And that's not what we're we're seeing anymore. But that also sets aside the idea of a society like when I was young, where people got interested in a thing and said, Yeah, I'm going to go to college for a while and learn about this thing as much as I can. And it's not going to put me in debt for the rest of my life, it's just going to expand. My knowledge as a human being. I mean, those days, that's that's really a big part of this too. Those days are out the window. It's like now, if you're gonna go to college, you're damn careful about what you're deciding to do. It's very narrow in the amount of school you're gonna get just simply because of the sheer volume of debt that's gonna come on the tail end of that. And I will also add, I was old when I decided to go get my internet what was then called an internet technology degree. And I, I think that that was you know, I completed that in the early '90s, and I think Jason's hit the timeline right on the head because I think at that point it was already up to twenty-five grand, which is probably a fraction of what that same training would be today or that same course to to get degreed in that would be today. That's
1: true, and it's I think the comparison that uh, when Jason and I were talking offline, the comparison I made was, you know, we're talking about in the past, it was more about knowledge, and now that degree program and just university life in general is a commodity. It's, it's something that is viewed as an end in itself, not the experience. And you're talking about wisdom versus just, you know, job skills. And that's all the university ads when you go online, or if you see an ad on TV or hear something on the radio or whatever, um, they're focusing on job skills, like preparing you for the jobs of the future. You always hear that phrase constantly, you know, giving you the skills, you know, for tomorrow's jobs, today, you know, all that empty, I mean, it's obvious PR speak, you know, to tie back to our last episode together. Um, it's a, it's a full-spectrum dominance type of situation, both off-campus, you know, with the bombardment of mailers and ads and things, and then once you step on campus, it's it's ratcheted up times a thousand Um and you're constantly being told that, you know, you're here to get the job skills you need to go get a job. Well, if only one-fourth of the jobs out there require somebody like me getting these skills, what's everybody else doing? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's it, like I said, it just feeds into that. Like I said at the beginning, it feeds into that whole mental chaos, and it leaves people just confused enough, just questioning enough to stay vulnerable to everything else that's going on around them on campus. Um, I, uh, I think a good... A good example of that, just to wrap this part of it up, I guess. One of the most invasive species on a college campus are the predatory credit card companies.
2: (laughs) I remember that.
1: Yeah, right? You got the free t-shirt or whatever, you know. Um, I think one time they... they (laughs) The giveaway was like a a stuffed bear, you know, and uh, I literally signed up for a credit card to get a stuffed bear for like this girl, you know, like, here you go, like the Citibank bear or whatever it was, you know, I mean, these kids are, are, when you say walking dollar signs, they absolutely are by everybody involved, the school, those credit companies, the lenders, everybody. And they're wide open to it because they're on one hand being told they need these, quote, job skills for the job of the future. Even though most of the jobs of the future won't require it, but they're not told that. You know, they're left in that vulnerable state. They're open to that. Oh, okay, I can just sign this thing and get my my loan. I can just sign this paper and get my free T-shirt and a credit card. You know, where I can spend a couple thousand dollars and not worry about it right now. Um, you know, it it just sort of encapsulates everything else that, that we're going to get into later, in my opinion, because these kids are being. <laughs> forced down this path, being strapped with debt in the process, and coming out the other side with a head full of just useless trivia, in my opinion. They, they aren't job skills. It's not wisdom. It's just trivia.
0: Well, it's it's intentional slavery, in a yes. way, if you look at it. Um, it wasn't too long ago, I forget how long back, when uh, the rules were changed about what bankruptcy would cover. Uh, it used to be that if you had student loans and you you applied for bankruptcy, uh, that that would be taken care of within the bankruptcy. At some point, not in the too distant past, uh, that was out the window. It didn't matter if you went into bankruptcy, you were still on the hook for your student loan debts. But so many people listening, probably not as old as I am, when I was in high school, my parents had one credit card and they were professionals, and you did not use that credit card for nearly anything. That was like the emergency be-all, end-all. And if you did use the, the credit card, you sure as hell didn't run up debt. Um, but I was going to add something about the uh, – uh, I'll get back to it in a minute when I think of it. Jason, go ahead. So there's a couple points I'd like to
2: add on to the whole you're a student getting the four-year degree – situation. I have personal experience with working jobs in restaurants as a server where multiple people I was friends with had four-year degrees. I think a couple of them even had masters. But not only were they paying off massive student debt, they couldn't get a job in the field that they went for or those jobs didn't pay enough that the server job actually paid them more and was less of a headache, less responsibility. You went in, you made some cash, and you left. So that just appalled me to see so many people that were definitely intelligent, well-read, all of that, and here they are waiting tables that they could have done anyway without tens of thousands of dollars of debt now attached to them.
0: Well, I can address that in a direct way. Uh, We also see another thing going on on the employment side of the house where they keep hiring young people with the idea that these guys are fresh out of school or they're young, so we pay them less. And I've seen this firsthand. When I was still in San Diego back before the, like, 08 crash, um, and I was still working online, doing online things, uh, I saw an engineering firm where the existing older engineers couldn't grasp these new 3D kind of CAD-like softwares as quickly as it was assumed uh, the young people were that were playing Halo and things like that. And they were right. They found young people, trained them up at a fraction of a cost, paid them 10, 15 bucks an hour, which is a pittance compared to what you're paying, you know, a full-fledged engineer of years on the job. And these young people came in. And so that's exact proof of what we're talking about. There's going to be people Coming out of a school somewhere, whether it's a trade school or otherwise, that would be qualified to run these softwares. But those were not the people getting hired. They were going out to cut corners, training up these young people for a fraction of an hourly wage, um, and those those young people were doing the job just fine. And it goes to show, all around, it's not just on the university side. But even the employers are being forced into this money game. Um, and, and you know the overall result is why we're doing this show. Yeah, that's right. that's right.
1: So
2: Tom, take us to the next level.
1: Well, I think this might be a good spot to um, inject a little bit of my uh, my own experience into this. Um, I had uh, I had begun um, I had gone through that same meat grinder, that same prayer pressure, uh, scenario in the early nineties as well. And everybody at that time had told me, you know, you're a, you're a good writer. You ought to pursue writing, you know, um, you know, whether that's English or journalism, communications, something like that. Um, then, so that's what I did. I, I didn't necessarily want to get into the academic scenario. Okay. But I felt compelled just like most other kids right now that are gradu- looking at graduating this coming year from high school, they have everybody telling them what they ought to be doing based on you know, innate talent or some other interest or something like that. Follow your passion is always the, the, the BS sort of line that's given. Um, <clears throat> I mean, thank God I didn't go for one of the sort of BS degrees that we'll touch on later, Jason. Um, but yeah. uh, I did go for uh, journalism. And, well, it was, it was writing. Like you, if you were an English major at, at my university, um, you could either go towards the literature side or the writing side of that. And on the writing end, you could focus on fiction, you could focus on uh, um, research, you know, classic research method and and research writing or journalism. I tended towards the the latter too. I did a lot of research uh, methodology. I was a, a tutor all the way through my undergrad years. I, tutored writing for graduate students, PhD students, um, as well as undergrads. Um, so, you know, that was always front and center for me. Um, but the, the sort of first inkling that I had that there was kind of a game going on here, um, and I was certainly not uh, part of the house money that was winning, was um, my sophomore year, I had a uh, a uh, academic advisor, which our You know, for anybody not familiar, it's just another one of the hats that your professor wears. They they advise a group of students on course choices and direction for their major and potential job leanings and all that stuff. And so my my uh, advisor called me in one day and he said, listen, um, the school is uh, actually in the process of letting go all of the journalism professors. Uh, And I said, well, what does that mean for my major? Well, you would have to set up individualized study and um, internships at like the local newspaper, local magazine, stuff like that. Um, and there wouldn't actually be anybody teaching you the journalism classes anymore. And I'm, I flat out said, well, why am I paying to be here?
0: But, but wait a minute. What <laughs> year was this? I, I mean, if, you, if, if it's okay, I mean, are we talking in the 90s? Are we talking yeah. up past? The, yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, we're talking in the – this would have been by like the mid-90s at this point when this conversation so. happened.
0: So all the way back then, um, on the face of it, if people hadn't recognized it by then, journal- journalism is officially being thrown into the dumpster. Not that it did much before that.
1: Well, what they were doing, I found out afterwards. First off, they, they, they kept journalism on as part of the writing major. okay. But the show game, at least in their case, was they shuffled it from the communications department to the English department um and put it under that heading sort of a way to make it less noticeable that they had ditched the actual staff that taught the program but still kept the program on so you're you know what i mean you're sort of you're you're openly fooling potential students by saying of course we have a journalism program right we don't have anybody to teach it but we have that program you know and you know you're going to get real world experience yeah because there's nobody in the classroom to teach you you know so That sort of got my ire up a little bit. And I asked, you know, what should I do? And he said, off the record, transfer. So I did. It just so happened that the school I transferred to to finish my undergrad at the time hired like four out of the six profs that my previous university had fired the year before. I ended up having a lot of the same profs I would have had at, at university one as I ended up having at university two. And the year after those guys were hired, they hired my former academic advisor as well. And when I ran into him on campus, I said, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing here? He goes, remember that conversation we had a couple years ago? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I had that same conversation with a handful of other students like you. And um, the dean didn't appreciate that. So I was canned. I mean, it. so it's not just that journalism is thrown under the bus. It's the entire idea of integrity in general is just out the window. <clears throat>
0: uh-huh. I, I thought- You know, I found the same thing. I was in one of the earliest uh, offerings of Internet technology in the country, and when we got in there, the professors were all ported over from multimedia. They didn't know a damn thing about the Internet. As a matter of fact, I can remember lectures where they're reading from the book saying things like, a computer has a cache, trying to say "cash." Or referring to an animated GIF trying to describe how that works and calling them GIFs and all these things. Um, it's a similar thing. You're told there's this program with these people to teach you. And in truth, I basically taught myself nearly everything I walked away with. So it wasn't, you know, we, we, you and I both ex- experienced a similar thing there. And I,
1: it went even further. I um, i went on to graduate studies. Um, same school where I had finished my yeah. undergrad um, uh very, And this, is, this was a little bit fishy, um, but we don't have the time or the, uh, the scope to get into why I think this was fishy, but it's worth mentioning. Out of nowhere, about two weeks or so, two and a half weeks before this, my, I started my first semester of graduate studies, I got a letter from the chair of the department. By this point, I should mention, I had minored in history as an undergraduate. I decided to make that my uh, major for grad school. Because, in my opinion, I needed something to write about. I didn't want to just talk about writing all the time and write about writing. I wanted to have a subject that meant something to me. And history was always front and center for me from day one. So I went that way. I got a letter out of nowhere about two weeks before classes started from the department chair telling me that she wanted me as her uh, grad assistant. I didn't know until I went in and talked to her. I said, you know, why did you pick me? And she well... She's like, I had you in class a couple times years ago and I remembered your work and I really wanted you in the department. And I just thought that was very odd. Here's a, a woman who teaches hundreds of students every semester. How did I stand out out of that? You know, I certainly wasn't <laughs> probably the best student she had or anything, but I got picked literally. And I found out she bumped somebody else out to bring me in and I credit, credit rating?
0: Is this my credit rating? <laughs> right? I
1: wish. My gosh, I wish. No, I, I, I honestly, I mean, I have some opinions on that, but we, like I said, we don't really have the time or scope to get into all that. That's That ventures down some conspiratorial territory that is interesting, but it would take us off topic, far off topic. Um, but what was very odd is that all of a sudden I went from staring down, in my mind, I went from staring down the barrel of bringing on additional debt Um. And um, to now having, you know, tuition paid for, a monthly stipend, books covered, et cetera. What I didn't know, once I signed the papers to become an employee of the university, is that the stipend was set against tuition cost, And... Um, all of those numbers had been figured a good 10, 15 years prior, and they had never been raised or changed after that. So every time a tuition increase occurred, I was on the hook for the difference. So um, even though I had, quote, free tuition, I still had to take out loans as a grad assistant. Uh And not just any grad assistant. I was top of the heap in our department. Um, Literally sought out by the department chair. So... It just kind of goes to show anybody listening right now if you're looking at postgraduate work and they offer you that carrot of an assistantship and a tuition waiver, get all the rest of the info together before you sign your life away on it. Because I ended up having, I ended up almost tripling my student loan load during a supposedly free graduate degree program. As I had, as I had taken on as an undergrad,
0: I want to insert something here. Uh, We had, we had a person that we're aware of. Do you have the inoculation text handy, Jason?
2: All right. Here's the email we were sent from another listener. In 1992, I was accepted into a PhD program at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Midway through the first semester, I was contacted by a school administrator who informed me that the vaccination records that I submitted in my application were invalid. She told me that in order to continue attending classes, that I would need to get a series of 12 vaccinations. I replied that in my initial application, I had provided official records showing eight vaccinations, so I should only then need to get four more. She replied that all out-of-state vaccination records are invalid, and in order to continue attending, I must immediately get all of these 12 vaccinations. I had to get a doctor, plan out all of these 12 vaccinations, fill out forms, get the forms notarized, and deliver to the administrator within a small time period to continue attending." In a period of about two weeks after getting 10 of the 12 shots, I began feeling sick and so did not complete the last two. Being delinquent on the administrator's schedule, she called me and I told her my story. She stated that, though not school policy, she would let me continue through the semester, but credits will not become official until she receives confirmation that I had obtained the final two vaccinations." Also, that I would not be able to attend the next semester without these. I got through the final exams thinking, what am I going to do? I mean, I was always feeling nauseous, like I had a half of a flu for over a month now, and I thought it was the shots. I kept thinking little pig viruses were still inside me, making me sick. Since it was the summer, I had a few months to think it over and to see if I get better. That summer, I developed Two small splotches of psoriasis on my legs. That was the only sign I needed to tell me that I was never going back to school. A few years later, while the nausea and illness faded, the psoriasis did not. I went to three different physicians over the next 20 years and told them all my story of how I thought I got this condition. None of them accepted this, advising that though no one knows how one contracts psoriasis, psoriasis is
0: hereditary. I completed one PhD course and never received a grade. Come on, man! This is this is damn 1984. What business does a union university have uh, forcing you to ingest inoculations into your body? And what's worse in this particular story, it's bad enough. I'm um, not even bad enough. It's it's damn terrible that someone is trying to compel you to get your education that you got to receive needles into your body. Um, but. Th- the initial part of the story is is that he had already received eight inoculations from another state, and then was told, "No, you can't. The the, the other states' inoculations aren't good enough. You got to get them in our state." So by the time he gets the the starts in on the series he's being forced to take to get into his PhD program, the man has taken eighteen damn inoculations and become sick. And by the way, Jason, I got. Some images sent me after the fact that showed this kind of horrendous skin condition that's gone on ever since this, and it kind of goes to show what we're pointing at here. The control system is just, it's rampant. It's everywhere. It's not bad enough you're being enslaved into um, basically a lifetime mortgage just to get educated. um, If your family can even approach affording that, which fewer families are being able to all the time, now they're sitting there telling you you need to ingest inoculations uh, to even be allowed to be educated. Um, It's a hell of a thing, Jason. And it goes
1: back to fear driving the car in this situation. You know what I mean? And thank goodness this guy had a a level head and was going through this logically. But how many thousands of others in his exact situation just plow right on through because they're under the delusion of all their lives being told, you know, they got to go to college, they have to get a job, and the only way they get a job is to go to college and take on this debt and all that pressure mounting and the chaos of being thrown into this at age 18 And having to make all these lifelong decisions right there on the spot, you know, and over the next few years, similar situations constantly popping up. And that fear just driving them, like fear of failure, fear of letting everybody down, fear of not having a job. Uh, You do whatever, you know, I mean, not you, but you know what I mean? The the vast majority of people would roll right along with that. Um, it's, It's insanity defined.
0: I wonder what would happen in this day and age if you claimed religious, um, you know, said for religious reasons, you refuse to do that. It's against your religious beliefs. You know, in the 80s, I was aware of people that were in an earlier version of Scientology and while Scientology says a lot of things, there was a whole side of medicine. And recently, the reason I'm bringing this up is recently in the news, um, Hollywood has just been eviscerating Scientology, and you got to wonder how much of this plays into it. Who cares if someone wants to believe um, that an alien put us here, that the moon's, you know, who cares about all that? What's the big deal? I think the real big deal is these people wouldn't take inoculations and do other things. By the time you get to a world where just to get educated, you're going to be forced to take 12 inoculations um that's that's a pretty severe world and and i I will wonder out loud what would happen if someone in that position said it's against my religious beliefs to take those inoculations i'm i'm almost venturing a guess here that at this point that wouldn't matter
1: what i wonder what they would do with international students i mean do they get
0: a pass Yeah, twice as many, right? Yeah, because when you come into this country or when you leave this country, you know what? It's a wonder I can even think. I can't even tell you how many times I was shot in boot camp for the Marine Corps alone. In some cases, taking somewhere three to five, um, we would literally get in a line, roll up both sleeves, pull down our pants so the top of both butt cheeks uh, were available. And they had these little guns where they would shoot. a a conveyor line of young marines coming through and change the cartridge and we get four i can remember getting four all at once i can also remember people uh coming down with flu-like symptoms but i would imagine that if someone's coming in from a different country they must be at this point in the game subject to many more inoculations unreal i
2: bet that's nowhere near what a newborn gets these days though (laughs)
0: <laughs> not if I not if I have a newborn. If I ever had a newborn again, which I'm too old to even think about at this point, but knowing what I know now, it, hell or high water could not compel me. No way would a new life that I'm responsible go anywhere near that stuff.
2: At this point, maybe I should get in the first point from my other source, and that's that the university, college or university, acts as a corporate entity. And therefore, the behavior you see is very much like a corporation.
0: One thing I noticed um, growing up in San Diego and, and having family members directly related to universities and being students and other things, the UC system is, is in California. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the biggest money markets for retirement accounts in the world. It ranks up there somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where anymore. But in the news at the time, probably five, six, seven, eight years before I moved, it was constantly uh, the, the Students at the, in the UC system were complaining that every time around their tuition was going up. Meanwhile, alongside that in the news, there was constant construction going on. They were always adding a $2 million lab or a multi-million dollar this, that, or the other thing, um, and that's exactly what like a corporation, Um, that's about growing, 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 and taking in more cash the whole time. But it was just ironic, now that I look back on it, to see all these students complaining about tuition hikes, which were significant. By the way, we're not talking about small hikes here and then knowing firsthand because I lived in the area that constant construction. By the way, I worked for some of the construction places uh, with their online things when I was still back in that day. Um, So I knew some of the companies that were building all these multimillion dollar buildings. But there's all that. That goes right to the second point that we briefly touched on earlier.
2: Students are money, and the professors are told this by their superiors. But they're also told, "Don't say that out loud." But when you see a student walking down the hall, it's a hundred thousand dollars, at least. God,
1: and it's not just the dollar figure. Um, when I was uh, when I was a grad assistant, and later on uh, on as an instructor, um, but particularly during the years that I worked for the. Um, Department chair at my university. I was privy to the hiring process. They were bringing on four new uh, tenured uh, staff members into the department at that time. And so I was in on all of the hiring that went on, uh, the interviews, the, the sort of audited uh, uh, lectures that they they would give and so forth, uh, the different candidates that is. And one of the things that was explained to me by one of our current staff members at the time, uh, was that? This was all tied to not just whether or not that person was hired for tenure, but whether or not that candidate was going to be on board for um, retaining headcount in the department. Not just how much headcount they could help to increase because of you know their credentials or whatever you know the prestige that they were bringing in, but part of that. You know, as mentioned, you know, every professor also has to serve as an academic advisor. And part of their job as an academic advisor is to retain the headcount in that department. So they would, they flat out said, like, sometimes you have to kind of, you know, fudge the truth a little bit, massage the truth um, to keep those students in the department. Don't let them change majors or transfer schools. You know, suddenly my advisor from my previous university's uh, termination made total sense. He was fired because he was purposely dropping headcount from the department at his so, old job.
0: So, so wait a minute here, though. Specifically, I mean, that's a pretty broad way of speaking. What are some of the actual actions an individual would need to do to maintain a headcount?
1: Well, for example, if you know that there's only so many jobs, say, for history majors. I'll go back specifically to my experience. There's only so many jobs for a kid that goes in to get an undergraduate degree in history. Right. You know what I mean? It's a very, very limited range that they can apply that skill set to. So if a student came in, and I've watched this happen, a student came in and is armed with the data had actually gone and done the work and looked up the data of how many jobs and the types of jobs and the pay scale available for somebody with an undergraduate degree in history and nothing else and they said i'm thinking about changing my major to something like computer science where i could get a better paying job and have a better shot at finding that job after graduation and having the professor literally talk them out of changing majors
0: See, I'm a little and confused here, but so so if someone <coughs> changed a major, they would still be within the same university. So why does the university care, or am, well, the, I off, am I missing the point here?
1: You're missing part of the point, and that is that every department is competitive with one another.
0: Ah, I see. Okay. Because of
1: how the money is doled out from one department and one Uh, Because, you know, so in in a university system, there's the different colleges. There's the College of Arts and Sciences, College of Humanities, College of Medical, whatever, you know. So each of those breaks down. It's very hierarchical. And so each of those gets a certain chunk of money based on need. And a lot of that need is based on headcount. So if you lose headcount in your department, you might not be able to get that grant next time around that you're asking for. Especially if you're the, the one prof that lost the most headcount during your review period. Um, because it takes so typically five years of working as a tenure-tracked uh, hire and then in year six they vote on whether or not you're get granted tenure. And in between that time, you have to demonstrate your value, not just in how much you publish and how much you present your work at conferences and so forth, but also in your headcount retention. Yes, they audit your your lectures and so forth. But they also pay attention to your advisees, you know, did they stay in, did they drop out, did they change majors, did they transfer, you know, and they keep all those stats. And so when you're up for tenure, you get up for that review, you have to go in and present just stacks of paperwork to demonstrate your value before they go in and vote on whether or not you're granted tenure. And it doesn't end after that, because then you have to keep doing that same thing in order to be eligible for raises, promotions, etc.
0: So, Okay, so wait a minute here. Um, let, let me let me try to back off. Um, so you're saying part when they when you get hired, um, you're saying that when you're hired, you understand that you're on a track for tenure. Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so you get hired, you understand, and I assume you're going to define tenure here at some point. Um, I understand it because it directly affected my family, but. So, when they're deciding you've been there for some period of time doing the whole professor thing, and they're going to dis- decide whether you're awarded tenure, part of that must be from academically what you've been up to or your value in your field. But what you're pointing out here is there's a whole corporate side. This is about dollars and cents. This is about mm-hmm. headcount. This is about every student being worth a hundred grand. What would you estimate? I, I mean, if someone was just so, so, as, a, as an educator or, you know, as a professor in their field, but they were fantastic at headcount, do you feel like that would, you know, likely get them tenure? Uh,
1: absolutely. Yes. <laughs> no question. Absolutely no question. I,
0: I, think, I think, I don't know if I'm making you jump the gun here, Tom, but maybe we should define what tenure is for people who have never heard that word before.
1: Sure. Um, so, at a university, there's two types of uh, instructors. There's the adjunct instructor, which is somebody that's just there on a year-to-year contract. Uh, if you're really good, they might give you a two-year contract, but you're you're not there for. It. There's no promise of tenure, and tenure just simply means that you're going to be um, added if if your state has like a a union, uh, which mine did. Um, you'd be added to that union automatically. You cannot be dismissed from your job. It's, it's, you know, it's almost like a lifetime guarantee. As long as you want to work there, um, you have a job, you know, and if you're comfortable with where you're at money-wise at that level, you can kind of just go on your merry way and sort of go through the motions for your career and not really try to advance and you're fine. Um, if you want raises, if you want promotions, you want to be considered a de- for an open department chair or something like that, then you you continue jumping through those same hoops that got you tenured in the first place. So you keep you know tabs on headcount. You keep doing more and more publishing, more and more research work. You know you keep applying for more grants, all of that. Um, but yeah, that's all tenure is. It's just to make sure it's it's a separator first off. And believe me, the tenured professors and the ten the people that are on track for tenure definitely look down their noses at the adjuncts, the one-year people, um, the temps, you know, you'll hear them called names like that, the temps, the subs, um, and God forbid that one of those those uh, adjuncts doesn't have their PhD yet. It's just, oh my goodness, end of the world. Uh, but tenure just simply means that. It just means that they have a guaranteed job, and um, we will touch on, in our two, Uh, At least one incident that I watched happen where that was not the case, and I know that we had a recent one at uh, University of Central Florida last year with that gentleman that was connected to uh, the incident in Connecticut. But that's another conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to cover <laughs> we're going to cover both those things in hour two. But let's be perfectly clear here. And by the way, that that thing that you just addressed lastly there um, is is a you know that's a stage crafted show for everybody. Um, but and I'll I'll get into that as we do. But just to be clear, if you're a professor at a university and you get tenure, pretty much means you're guaranteed a job for life, um, almost no matter what. But I will put a caveat there. Um, used to be back in the day, like 70s, early 80s, um, the joke would be made short of killing someone, you've got a job. Um, but there are, in fact, supposedly reasons you could lose tenure. Um, can you address that for a minute? Uh I, I
1: can. Uh, I'm just not sure whether it's going to be great for the the censors on YouTube. I don't know. Um, All right. But, then, I mean, then what we're you know.
0: what we're going to do is pull that into hour two. And I know we're going to talk about someone in Afri- African American studies and someone else who got tied up in the Sandy hoax nonsense. But Jason, do you have anything to uh, to throw in here?
2: Absolutely, I do. More points from my other source. There is no teacher's union at certain schools. This isn't always the case because it's on a state-by-state basis depending upon whether it's a right-to-work state or not. Some states have that. Some states do not. However, it has occurred in regards to serious issues that tenured professors have had their positions terminated if they go against the status
0: quo there it is that's what i was kind of trying to get at and i still tom i still want to address those critical points an hour two but my point here is is it's almost like you you could do a severe crime and still keep your job under tenure but lord forbid you go against the politics of your institution that in fact will get your butt terminated that's kind of what i was pointing at
1: absolutely i mean there were there were profs in uh, my own department at the time that were caught you know, having sex with students during office hours. Like, you know, a colleague would walk in, you know, hey, Joe, I need to get, oh, gosh, you know, walk out. Totally fine.
0: No doesn't matter. He's got doesn't his bulletproof matter. yeah, tenure vest on, right? Yep, that's right. Um, I think the
1: other thing to point out, too, is that there's not a whole lot of separation between these folks when you really boil it down um, and, say, a, a high school teacher. I mean, there really isn't. They're they're at least now, in the last, say, 15 years or so, the requirements for things like lesson plans are still there. So the the universities have become just as didactic and just as sort of tyrannical over these folks, even the folks with tenure, um, as a high school principal would be with his teaching staff. Um, And that didactic sort of dynamic is handed down to the teacher-student relationship as well. These kids are going in and learning... Air quotes learning in the same way that they learn in in junior high and high school. They're still regurgitating lecture points on multiple choice tests. It, it's it, they're not showing whether or not they absorb the information. And the professors don't care if they absorbed any of the information. You know, there as one uh, professor that I worked with pointed out um, at, because we were at a, a state university. Uh, He's like, we're just here to punch the card. Most of these people are the first people in their families to go to college. Our job is to punch their card and move them on through.
0: So so uh, what is, yeah, I, I would point out, um, <laughs> well, what does that say about the religion of science, right? The idea here is that people are learning, and in the modern Western tradition, uh, we learn through science, don't we? That's the be-all and end-all. So... You know, if you had, say, a professor who was doing research, independent research, and he came to the wild conclusion that he had found evidence that, let's just say, the Apollo missions didn't go down the way they thought. Or maybe he came up with something that he realized needed more investigation, like the description of our world is incorrect. The only thing... That keeps that individual, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, from rocking the boat, is job security, which comes down to politics, which again points to the religion of science doesn't even really have to police itself in that kind of university setting. That's correct. It's absolutely correct. Now,
2: since we're almost at the top of the hour here, I want to get this last point in for hour one, folks, because we have a lot of stuff in hour two that we really would be pushing our luck if we put in hour one because of the massive censorship that goes on now. And that's continuing with this concept of the university acting like a corporate entity. The deans act as CEOs who then report to the administration, who report to the board. And the board is usually made up of lawyers and business people, not educators most of the time. This board would then report directly to the state and the state... Is more than likely reporting to the federal government.
0: Sound like a uh, sound like a typical corporation, you know, structure there. But anyhow, mm-hmm. Jason, we are to the top of the first hour, and I will say, um, I I did want to address some of these issues we started to bring up, but it's pretty clear we need to push them, and I will dance around the narrative just to give people a heads up who want to come catch the second hour. Part of it is about an individual engaged in African-American studies and diet, of all things. And when you hear that reason, I mean, it's unbelievable. But the other person actually supposedly spoke up uh, about challenging something that had been put out in the news, and that story went national. But we just can't cover it here in hour one because the black-eyed beast of censorship, in fact, lives where we post our one anyhow that brings our one of episode 131 to a close i'd like to remind everybody that sunday nights every sunday night jason and i do a live show with a live chat that's free to everyone who would like to sign up for the live chat i just have my timing corrected i was saying it is 6 p.m est but i someone pointed out that that's not correct so at 6 p.m new york time Every Sunday night on Truth Frequency Radio, we do a live show, and the live chat room is integral to driving that show. Anyhow, there it is. Hope to see you all over uh, at Crow 777 Radio for Hour 2, where we're going to address things we just can't address here anymore. There it is, man. Cheers.